Well, last Sunday, we began a new section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it starts in Matthew chapter 6, and it begins with warnings about how we should practice our faith with God. Last Sunday, we talked about hypocritical generosity, and Jesus warned against making a big showy deal out of our giving. When we do that, the only reward we will receive is the admiration and praise of other people. When we show off in our giving, it focuses all of the attention on us and the spotlight on us. And instead, Jesus says, when we give, we we should focus the attention and spotlight on God, and we should do our giving as quietly as possible. Then God will see and be pleased, and our reward will come from Him. We also talked a lot last week about motivation being the most important thing when we seek to please God. What is our motivation when we give to others? Is it to make ourselves look good, or is it to make God look good? Our motivation needs to be to make God look good, because then whether we give in secret or others see us giving, it doesn't matter. Because when our light shines, even in our giving, if it brings glory and honor to God, then that is a positive thing. You see, when we glorify God in everything we do, it causes other people to be drawn to God. Well, this past week in our Bible reading plan, Jesus continued teaching about the proper way to practice spiritual disciplines or habits. We know that prayer is a powerful and necessary spiritual discipline. Jesus, who modeled that prayer is of the utmost importance, teaches that the manner in which we pray can be more important than what we actually say when we pray. Jesus gives us several elements of proper prayer that include praying in secret, avoiding vain repetition, patterning our prayers after His example, and offering prayer with a merciful and forgiving heart. Jesus taught about how we should practice a second spiritual discipline this past week in our reading also, and that discipline is fasting. Jesus himself practiced this discipline, and he talks about it as something we are to do. He says that we are to approach fasting in the same manner as prayer. Now, our main scripture passage for today comes from Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, beginning in the fifth verse, and it picks up exactly where last week's lesson on giving left off. Jesus said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full." But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now prayer is arguably one of the most commonly practiced spiritual habits. And Jesus has a number of things to teach us about how we ought to pray. There was a father and his young son who went to town one Saturday morning to run some errands, and while they were in town, they decided to grab some lunch at their favorite diner. They went in and they sat at the counter where they knew their favorite waitress would wait on them and where they also knew they could look through that big window into the kitchen and watch their food as the chef was making it. Well, finally, the waitress brought the burgers and fries and whatever they ordered for lunch. And when she had done that, the father turned to his little son who was seated on the stool next to him, and he said, let's say a silent prayer before we eat. And so they both folded their hands and closed their eyes and bowed their heads. Well, the dad finished his prayer, and he waited for his boy to finish, and he waited And he waited some more. And finally, after a pretty long while, the little son opened his eyes. Well, by now the dad was curious. What could he have been praying about all this time? And so he asked the boy, son, what were you praying about for so long? And the little boy said, how should I know? It was a silent prayer. (laughs) Some truth in that, right? Well, sometimes we pray out loud. Other times we pray in silence. Sometimes we pray in a group. Other times we pray alone. But one of the undeniable marks of Christian discipleship is that a Christian is one who prays. Jesus teaches us some elements of proper prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look at four of those this morning. And the first one is to pray in secret. Jesus often demonstrated this in his own personal life of prayer. Sometimes Jesus would awaken early in the morning before it was even light outside, and he would go off by himself to a solitary place to pray. In fact, Luke chapter 5, verse 16 tells us that Jesus did this often. Other times, Jesus would stay up all night praying, especially when he had a big decision to make. We know that he spent the night in prayer before he chose the 12 disciples. And we know that he went off by himself to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was put on trial and then crucified. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that we should pray so secretly that no one else even knows that we're praying. I mean, after all, if Jesus prayed that secretly, 
we wouldn't even know that he went off early in the morning to pray or that he prayed all night. Matthew and Luke and other disciples had to know something or they wouldn't even have known enough to record it in Scripture. I mean, think about it. Other people are going to learn from watching you and your life of prayer. Your children or your grandchildren, they'll learn from your example of prayer in front of them. They'll develop the habit of prayer themselves by watching you before mealtimes or bedtime. And when other people know that you pray, people like your friends, your neighbors, even your coworkers, they may ask you to pray for them. And these are good things about your life of prayer, having at least a modicum of public knowledge. Again, it's not about, it is about your motivation. Are you praying to bring attention to yourself, or are you praying in order to bring attention to God? I think what Jesus is saying is that we need to have some alone time with God. We need to make some uninterrupted time when we can concentrate on God and not be distracted by anything else that's going on in our life. I find that two of the best times of day for me to pray are at the very beginning of my day, before anyone else in the house is awake, and right before I go to bed at night. I have a place in my living room where I can sit and I can have my first cup of coffee in the morning and I can pray to the Lord. That always seems to get my day started off on the right path. But sometimes in the middle of the day, I find that heading over here to the sanctuary or maybe over to the, par the, to the chapel in the parlor um, is where I'll find some alone, uninterrupted time when I need some space to talk with God in the middle of the day. Other times I find that space when I'm walking or running in the woods and I find that kind of secret place where I can pray to God. Maybe you have a place or some places like that yourself. The second element of proper prayer Jesus teaches is that you don't need to pray with a lot of vain, empty words. If you've ever felt like you aren't very good at praying, or if you ever got anxious or shuddered at the um, thought that someone might ask you to pray out loud in a group because you wouldn't know what to say, well, I have some good news for you. Praying is just like talking to a friend who wants to hear from you. And if you're comfortable doing that, you can be comfortable praying. You don't need a lot of words to pray to God. Just tell God what you're thinking, what's going through your mind, what's on your heart. God doesn't need long ritual repetition. He doesn't need prayers that go on and on and on. He doesn't look for empty, insincere talk or even big, fancy words or these and thous. You're not trying to get his attention. You already have his attention. You're not trying to impress him because you can't impress him. Prayer is often a case where less is actually more. Quieting ourselves and listening to God instead of talking to hear ourselves talk is the beginning of prayer with the Lord, and it is a sign of mature prayer. Theologian Richard Foster writes that attuning ourselves to divine breathings is spiritual work, but without it, our prayer is vain repetition. Listening to the Lord is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing necessary.
Soren Kierkegaard observed, a man prayed, and at first he thought that prayer was talking, but he became more and more quiet until in the end he realized that prayer is listening. Just like it is with a close personal relationship, sometimes you know what the other person is thinking even when there aren't any words exchanged between the two of you. An interviewer once asked Mother Teresa what she said to God when she prayed, and she said, nothing, I just listen. And so the interviewer asked her, well, then what does God say to you when you pray? And she said, nothing, he just listens. That is intimate prayer, knowing without saying anything. The third element of prayer which Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is the example of the Lord's Prayer itself. Jesus teaches us to come to God as a child comes to his Father. He teaches that openness, honesty, and trust are the hallmarks of communication between a child and their dad. Like all authentic worship, and in relation to what Jesus has been teaching us about right motivation, the Lord's Prayer is first and foremost God-centered. It doesn't begin with our human needs and our human wants. It begins with honoring God. Jesus' example prayer begins with three God-centered thy petitions for God. Hallowed or holy be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because you see, for Jesus, God's kingdom was not just a future hoped for at the end of time. It was and it is a present reality that followers of Jesus Christ are working to build on earth in the here and now. The entire Sermon on the Mount is teaching us what life action and behavior for a disciple looks like in the kingdom. And Jesus' example for prayer calls it into being in the prayer itself. You cannot pray this prayer without committing your own will and action to fulfilling the will of God in the present. Well, these three God-centered or thy petitions are followed by three we petitions. Our daily bread, forgive us our debts, keep us from temptation. You see, the entire prayer is a communal prayer. It's meant to be prayed by us for the whole world. We pray our Father, not to my Father. We pray for our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Richard Foster has this to say about that first point about daily bread. He says, Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread. And then he says, have you ever noticed that children ask for lunch in utter confidence that it's going to be provided? Hey, mom, make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, will you? And they don't feel like they have to stash half of that sandwich away for tomorrow for fear that they won't get a sandwich tomorrow. As far as a child is concerned, there's an infinite supply of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches coming their way. Children don't find it difficult or complicated to talk to their parents and they don't feel embarrassed to bring the simplest of needs to their attention. 
So neither should we hesitate to bring the simplest requests confidently to our Father. Debts or trespasses in this prayer refers to the debt of sin, which every single human being comes with before God, a debt which we cannot repay on our own. And so without presumption, but also in confidence, the disciple is taught to ask for God's forgiveness. And we'll talk a little bit more about the reciprocal nature of that forgiveness in just a minute. And Jesus teaches us to pray that God would lead us away from being tempted and keep us out of the clutches of the evil one. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get so used to praying a prayer like the Lord's Prayer that sometimes I don't think very much anymore about what I'm saying when I say it. Does that happen to you too? Well, Pastor Jonathan shared something with me this past week that really helped me think about the Lord's Prayer with some fresh insight, and maybe it will help you too, and so I want to share it. I cannot say our if I'm not in fellowship with other Christians. I cannot say Father if I do not demonstrate this relationship in my daily life. I cannot say in heaven if, so, if I'm so occupied with earth that I never think about heaven. I cannot say hallowed be your name if I do not by holy living exalt his name. I cannot say your kingdom come if I'm not doing all in my power to hasten its coming. I cannot say your will be done if I'm not obedient to the will of God for my life. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I'm not prepared to give my life to him on earth as well as in heaven. I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I'm not trusting him for my every need. I cannot say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors if I harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot say, do not lead us into temptation if I deliberately place myself in a position to be tempted. I cannot say, deliver us from the evil one if I'm not prepared to fight evil in the spiritual realm with the weapon of prayer. I like that. The fourth thing Jesus teaches us about proper prayer in this text is about forgiveness. And as we've been learning in the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us about what life is like in God's kingdom so that we can live like that, modeling our lives after the example of the life of Jesus. The whole scope of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is built on the understanding that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again in order to atone for our sins, offer us forgiveness, and pay a debt for our sin that we could never, ever repay ourselves. Now, if God forgives us like that, then we have to forgive others. And it starts with an attitude of humility in our relationship with God. Jesus had this to say about people who are too confident in their own righteousness all the while looking down on everyone else. Pay attention in this text to who is forgiven or justified and who is not. I'm reading from Luke chapter 11. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus teaches his followers about fasting in addition to his teachings about prayer. And he makes the assumption that his followers do fast since he's giving instructions for when they fast, not if they fast. Again, Jesus is not teaching so much on the method we should use in fasting, but on the right motivation for fasting. Fasting, as referred to here by Jesus, is the voluntary abstention from food for a specific period of time for religious purposes. In that day, it was often accompanied by wearing sackcloth or a kind of rough burlapy, burlapy type of fabric. It was accompanied by placing ashes on a person's head or refraining from washing the body. And so, as you can only imagine, those things would let everyone around you see or sometimes even smell if you were fasting. Jesus teaches that when we fast, we should not call attention to the fact that we should bathe as usual, dress as usual, compose ourselves as usual. As with the rest of Jesus' teaching here, he is saying that God has to be the sole focus of our fasting. No other benefit of fasting, such as physical improvement, success in our prayers, or even spiritual insight, can be allowed to replace God as the center of our fast. John Wesley declares, First, let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eye singly fixed on Him. Let our intention herein be this, and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now, throughout the Bible, there are many, many instances and reasons why the people of God fasted. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight wrote a book entitled Fasting, and in it he describes the discipline of fasting as the natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous, sacred moment in life. You see, fasting is not something we do in order to produce results. It's a response we make to significant moments in our life. Let me give you a couple of examples. Sometimes in the life of a nation, she realizes her need to corporately confess her sins to God. In Israel, this was practiced as the annual national observance of the Day of Atonement. And to this day, Jewish people observe Yom Kippur. They repent of their sins, turn toward God, and fast. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. And in his address, he shared these words, We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. 
but we have forgotten God. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Another example of a sacred moment that often leads to fasting is the call for God's people to care for the poor and the needy. Now, there are approximately 2,500 verses in the Bible focused on God's call for us to care for people who are poor and those who are in need. And so it makes sense that the spiritual discipline of fasting would be connected to this important aspect of our faith. In Isaiah chapter 58, the prophet speaks these words from God to God's people. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? One of the things that Isaiah is emphasizing is the point of fasting isn't just to show that we are performing some religious duty. The point of fasting is to help us connect with the hunger and brokenness in our world so that we might do something about it. When we fast and miss a meal and begin to feel those hunger pains, we are reminded that we live in a world in which 854 million people are going hungry right now, even while we sit here in worship. We're reminded that every year 9 million people die in our world because of hunger. As you can imagine, fasting reminds us of our dependence on God. For when we abstain from something as simple as our daily bread, it highlights the things that control us. Fasting teaches us to give our need to control over to God. In Jesus' time, Israelites fasted on Monday and Thursday to remind them of their dependence on God. In the early church, Christians began to fast on Wednesday and Friday instead. Wednesday to help them prepare to observe the events of the last days of Jesus' life, including Monday, Thursday. And Friday to always remember the sacrifice Jesus made for us when he suffered and died on the cross on Good Friday. John Wesley encouraged the early Methodists to continue the practice of fasting on Wednesday and Friday. He went so far as to say that fasting was just as important as prayer and that the two disciplines ought to be practiced together. Jesus certainly saw it this way. So let us submit to the sincere and humble practices of prayer and fasting with our sole motivation to worship and glorify God. Let us follow Jesus' model for prayer and fasting. Let us pray right now. Holy Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for all that you are teaching us in this important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for teaching us about right motivation in all the spiritual disciplines that we practice to bring ourselves closer to you. Thank you for what you've taught us about generosity and today especially about prayer and fasting. 
Forgive us if we have ever used these disciplines to draw attention to ourselves. May we learn to practice them more fully so that we would be drawn closer to you and give you all honor and praise and glory. And when other people notice that we practice these disciplines because we love you, may, we, may you use that practice to draw them to your glory and them to be children, sons and daughters of yours. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.